0: Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 10, 1 through 39. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malkijah, Hatush, Shabaniah, Malach, Haram, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Gennethon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites. Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binuai, the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel and their brothers, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Kilida, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Benai, Benainu, the chiefs of the people. Parash, Pehath-Moab, Elam, Zatu, Benai, Bunai, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Harith, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezer, Meshezebel, Zadok, Jedua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohash, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabnea, Maasea, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Haram, and Baena. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the firstfruits of our ground and the firstfruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and and to bring the first of our dough, And our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse." For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Great job, Cassie. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, good morning and welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And if you are just joining us, we are currently studying the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Now, we began our study through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Actually, it's Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book, but, we've sep- but we have separated them to keep them um, distinct in our Bibles and to make it e- a little bit easier to find one another. We began this study at the beginning of 2022, and we're going to be finishing up February 5th. If you're interested in going back and listening to those sermons, you can find them all on our website or on our podcast. But what I'm going to do this morning, uh, first of all, I'm going to apologize because my son had a two-day wrestling tournament in the past two days, and I think I used about 85% of my voice there, okay? And then I've used probably another, let's just say 10% in the first service, and so you guys got the leftovers this morning, okay? So I'm going to need grace for my voice to hold out this morning uh, more than normal, But what I want to try to do is, I want to catch us up. So, if you didn't know, this book right here is primarily a story. It's a true story, but it's a story, all right? And we could call this the story of God. And in order for us to understand Nehemiah, well, let's just say a Nehemiah is a chapter within that story. So sometimes we've got to pull out and pull back at a 30, from a 30,000 foot view to understand the big picture, to understand what's going on in the, in the scene that we see in Nehemiah. So I'm going to pull back 30,000 foot here and overview what we call the story of God. Here's the big idea. God is the ultimate author. He is writing a story. He's the creator of all things. He created the world and everything in it. And if we're going to understand our story, which means if we're going to understand who we are, why were we created and how we should live, we have got to understand the story of God, the grand narrative that God is writing. Scripture teaches us that there are some incredibly important things that God has done in the past in his story, his story, his story. That we must understand if we're going to understand the story that we are a part of. Today, we're going to look back on some of the most foundational aspects of God's story. And if you don't understand these, then you will misunderstand the meaning, purpose, and the Greek term is telos. That's the goal. Telos. So if I, if I, um, if I'm an archer, my telos is my aim, my direction. I see a target way over there, that's my telos. And so I have to point my, my bow and arrow in that direction if I'm going to hit my target. Our life is meant to have a telos. We're meant to know where we're headed, know where we're going, and then live towards that purpose. If you don't understand the story of God, then you will get your telos wrong. You'll get your goal, the purpose, the meaning of your life off. Think of it like this, this. if you don't understand the story of God, the story that God is telling, then you won't understand what type of character you are to be. You won't understand your relationship to the author and what you are to do in the role God assigned to you. Now, it's my contention that this is a major problem in our world today, specifically in our country. People don't understand the grand narrative. They don't understand the story of God. So this, that means they don't understand what, who God created them to be. They don't understand what they are. They don't understand what they're for. They don't know, understand what they're meant to do. Therefore, everyone thinks of themselves as autonomous authors of their own story. They wrongly believe that they come into this world as a blank slate. Not a part of any grand narrative cut off from all history and legacy that they are just sole individuals who have to create an identity or go inside and find out who we are, define meaning for themselves, and then determine what kind of life they want and build the life they want. In this view of the world, we are the main actors of our own story trying to get everyone else around us to play a supporting role, right? So we see ourselves as the main actors, and and everybody else around us is playing a supporting role. Now listen, do you want to know why we're so frustrated with one another right now? This is why. Because everybody else outside of our story won't play their part, right? My boss is just supposed to give me a raise. That's what I want you to do. My neighbor is supposed to cut their grass, right? My teacher is supposed to do this, that, and the other thing. This person's supposed to vote that way, right? We're all trying to get everyone else to play a supporting role in our own story. And so we're all at odds with one another. Well, that's not the way God says the world actually is. God says that there is actually a much bigger story. A philosophical term used to describe this is called a meta-narrative, Okay? A meta-narrative. An overarching narrative that is that makes sense of everything. Not just some things. It makes sense of everything. It's a story that encompasses all other stories. A story that began in eternity past and will end in eternity future. And here's the cool thing. If you tap into this story, it can give your life, your kind of small life, your minuscule life, your, your small family, this small church, it can give us eternal significance. Now that's where we're going this morning, so let me pray for us and then I can get to work. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for speaking to us, that you are a God who writes, you are a God who tells stories, you are a God who creates. Jesus, we thank you for being the word that makes sense of all things. I pray this morning that you would anoint me from my head all the way down to my toes, Father God, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me, that you promise that your sheep would hear your voice. So great shepherd, Jesus, I pray that your sheep would hear your voice this morning. Speak to your people, we need you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Okay, here's a quick overview of the story of God. God is the author. He exists outside of his creation. He is not a part of his creation. He exists all by himself, yet our God has three personnel. You can say there's three persons in the one God, one essence, God, three persons, father, son, Holy spirit. We call this a Trinitarian being. He's a Trinitarian. And this Trinitarian being decides to write a story, right? This is where it all begins. What, What God does next, we're going to study in in this next coming series starting February 5th that I'm pretty excited about called Origins. God creates and what God is doing in creation, he had the idea to create a story or to create a play and now what he does is he sets the stage. He creates everything there is in order to put human beings on the stage, center stage. Now, this is an important point Since God is the author, God is writing the story, listen, not characters, okay? Listen to me. God is writing the story, not his characters. So when God puts Adam and Eve there, he doesn't just sit, he just doesn't sit them in the garden and sit back and go, let's see how this is going to turn out. Guys, create your story. No, God already knows how it's going to turn out. God has written them into his story. God is the author, So, God tells them who they are, God tells them what to do, and God tells them what will happen if they do said things. Now, this is the the big point I want you to see here. Therefore, immediately, human beings and God, their relationship was, I guess you could say, a formal relationship, it had guidelines. And rules. Now, in the beginning, it was very simple. It was just one rule. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you will surely die. Right? See what I mean? That's a consequential relationship. Right? If you, if you eat of that tree, you will die. Now, you come over from, to my house for dinner and I say, hey, guys, how's good? it's so good to see you. Just don't touch that or you'll die. Immediately, <laughs> you're like, whoa. Right? Their relationship with God from the from jump had consequences, had sharp edges to it. It was not a casual relationship. It was not just do whatever you want in the garden and we'll, we'll see what happens. No, it had some seriousness to it. It had some formality. And here's my contention this morning. If you don't understand this part, you won't understand the rest of the Bible. And you won't understand how you are meant to relate to God and live as characters in his story. What God is doing with Adam here, we now call making a covenant. That God is making a covenant with Adam. That's how God represent, or God, that's how God works and, and is in relationship with Adam. He works in a covenant relationship. And Adam was our covenant representative. You could call it our covenant head. We were present in Adam. So when God was making a covenant with Adam, God was actually making a covenant with all the human race. And that means that covenant, it was binding on Adam and that covenant is binding on us as well. Now, before I get too far, let me first answer the basic and most obvious question. What is a covenant? Now I'm going to use O. Palmer Robertson's definition from his book, *The Christ of the Covenants*, and he says this: "A covenant is, quote, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, with attendant blessings and curses." I'm going to say it one more time, then I'm going to break it down: a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, with attendant blessings and curses. Now, here, here let's get in this. What is a bond in blood? Well, first off, we read it's a bond. When you think of bond, you probably think of contract. That's what most people think. I think in a contract way. A bond is, we're, we're coming into a formal agreement. We're coming into a formal relationship that's not just based on my feelings or your feelings, but it's based on something that's probably either spoken or written, right? It's, so this is a binding agreement. It's a bond. Now listen, it's a bond in blood. What that meant is it was a bond to the death. It was a life or death agreement, right? Now, <clears throat> this is where we see the difference between, well, and the next part. Let me go to the next part. It's a, a covenant is sovereignly administered. That means when you're making a covenant, God is the executor of the covenant. God is the one who's overseeing the whole agreement. So if, it's a, if, it's, if you make a covenant with another human being, like you do in marriage, you're coming together Male, female, you're making a covenant with God. You're asking God to look down and see you make this covenant. God is gonna oversee it. God is going to uh, bless it or curse it based on your obedience to it. God is going to uh, hold you to it, right? That's what you're doing in a covenant. Now, a contract is much different and we need to get this understanding uh, in our heads right away. Let's say uh, I make widgets, okay? Okay. And you need widgets, right? You own a business. You need widgets. I make widgets. We come together. We make a contract. I'm going to make a million widgets for you. You're going to buy a million widgets for me. You didn't know you could afford it, but you can. All right? Million widgets. All right? But then, because we live in Iowa, a derecho comes in and destroys both of our businesses. Right? Now, you don't need widgets, and I can't make widgets. So we come together and go, hey, can we just cancel this contract? Yeah, I don't need it. I can't make it. Let's just cancel the contract. All right? That's how a contract works. Here's the difference in a covenant, right? God is the executor. God is the one administering the covenant. So in a covenant, I can't back out. So in a marriage, let's say you don't have any children and you realize this thing's just not working out. You're not meeting my needs. I'm not meeting your needs. Can we just call this a wash and break, break this thing off before anybody gets hurt? right? If you think contractually, sure, no big deal. But if you understand that marriage is actually a covenant between a man and a woman, you realize if if we were to do that, we would be sinning against God. We would be breaking covenant against God. That we're not just covenanting with one another, we're covenanting with God, right? So covenant is sovereignly administered. So it's a bonded blood till death do us part, life or death, sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. That's very simple. If you keep the covenant, there's blessings. If you break the covenant, there's curses. Adam, if you keep the covenant life and probably eternal life, it looks like that he would probably live forever for all we know. But if you, if you break the covenant, what death, right? Attendant blessings and curses. Well, here's what most people don't understand. God, only relates to his creation through a covenant. Listen, there is no casual way to approach God. Listen, there is no back door to God. You can't get around this idea of covenant. The only way to be in a relationship with God is to be in a covenant relationship with him. Many people miss this. If you go and read the Bible, why does God make covenant with people over and over and over and over again. We see him making covenant with Adam in the garden. Then we see him making covenant again with Noah. We see him making covenant with Abram. We see him making covenant with Moses. We see him making covenant with David. And then even promises all throughout the rest of the Old Testament in the prophetic books, I'm going to make a new covenant with a new David that's going to come. Of course, that was Jesus. Why? Why all this covenantal language? Sometimes we miss the forest for the trees, guys, because God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, and you cannot come to him any other way. It's the only way to be in a right relationship with God. What does that mean? Listen, that means every single human being on this planet, whether they know about this or not, is either a covenant-keeper or a covenant-breaker. There is no neutral ground. There is no neutral ground. We are all. Either under the blessings of the covenant. Or we're under the curses. Of the covenant. Well a person might say. "Well, I don't like that. That doesn't sound fair. Or nice. Or chill enough for me actually. Well exactly. God isn't a supporting actor in your story. God isn't trying to fit himself nicely and neatly into the worldview that you've created for yourself. God is the author of everything and you are living on his stage and in his grand narrative, and you are meant to find yourself in his script and be the character that he created you to be and play the part you were created to play. And here's the beautiful thing. If you will fit yourself in the story of God and take that arguably minuscule role that God's asking you to do, God can take that small part and bless the world with it. This week in missional community, I got to teach um, on the story of Abram and Sarah. And if you do remember that story, it's an epic story. Um, God shows uh, that he is the author, right? And so what God does is God looks down and God wants to do the same thing again. He wants to make a covenant with another man. And so what he does, he looks down and he finds the best and the brightest and the most holy and the most righteous man in all the earth. No, that's not what he does. Hopefully that you're, he looks down and finds Abram. He was living in Ur of the Chaldeans and they were famous moon worshipers. So God looks down and says, you know, Abram is minding his own business, worshiping the moon, right? And, And God says, I've got a different plan for your life. I'm writing you into my story. And he comes down and he makes a covenant with Abram. And back in the day, to make a covenant to show that it was a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, it, they would it typically would say, "We cut a covenant." We cut a covenant. Now, why would they say cut a covenant? Because usually what they did was they would kill an animal and they would divide it into two. They would cut this animal into two. This happens in Genesis 15. And the people, would, the people that are making the covenant would walk through those pieces. And they would say this, if I break my side of the covenant, let me be like this animal torn apart. Okay, that's what it meant to cut a covenant. In Genesis 15, God walks through those pieces when he makes a covenant with Abram. So God comes down, makes this covenant with Abram. This is what he says, I want you to leave everything you know. I want you to leave all your hometown and I want you to go where I tell you to go and be who, you, who I say you're going to be. And if you do this, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And Abram says, okay, right? This is a huge act of faith. The Bible says because he believed God in that moment, God made him righteous. God counted him as righteous. So God made him righteous through his faith. And then what happened? Abram went on and Abram obeyed God and disobeyed God. Abram uh, kept the covenant and broke the covenant. There were some ups and downs, good things and bad things. But God remained faithful to the covenant with, he made with Abram. And then what happens? From Ab- We can go on and on and on, but from, A- I don't have time to go through that whole story right now. From Abram's lineage, Come the Israelites, and then later Jesus, then later on, even Islam, right? Think about this. When Abram chose to obey God and become a character in God's story, rather than the main character in his own story, God used him to literally change the whole world. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all find their origins in this one man and his two families, right? And you see the blessing and you see the curse, right? With Ishmael, he tried to take it into his own hands, right? And he, he, so did his wife, gave it. You know, he slept, with the, he slept with the servant and had Ishmael. And from that line comes Islam. And he, God gave him the, the man of the promise. And, he, and from him, you get Isaac and then you get Jesus and you get everybody else from there, right? So what we see from this is God is a covenant-making God. Now listen to this. He's even made a covenant with creation. Jeremiah 33 says that God made a covenant with the day and the night to keep them coming at their respective times. So you will never understand what is going on here in Nehemiah if you don't understand this, uh, under, this, this concept of a covenant. And this is why last week we saw Ezra tell the story of the covenant making God again. He was reminding the Israelite people who God was, what he had done in making a covenant with their forefathers, and reminding them of what their ancestors had done in breaking the covenant. He was saying, this is the story that you are a part of. Remember Adam, remember Moses, remember David, remember your forefathers, remember the good and the bad and the ugly, and choose you this day, what type of character are you going to be in this story? Are you going to be a covenant keeper or are you going to be a covenant breaker? Are you going to be one of God's family or are you going to be like one of the pagans? He's rooting them in a story and then he's reminding them of the powerful nature of the covenant that God will always do what he promised to do, blessings and curses. So what we have is the people are gathered together. They continue to read from the old covenant. They continue to read from the Bible and they're hearing the stipulations of the covenant. They're hearing the rules and the regulations and what you're supposed to do. And they're responding to it as God's covenant people. And that's where we find ourselves today. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to jump all those names, all right? Why are we going to jump all those names? I can't do it better than Cassie. That's why. She nailed it this morning, all right? But it, I will just say this one thing. People ask us sometimes, well, why do we do church membership? Because church membership matters. A formal, God, God makes our relationship with one another formal, right? He, we, we read the names of these people because they're making a covenant with God. They're, they're renewing their covenant and they're signing their name on the dotted line. And they're saying, we, will, we promise to do these things. And when you come together in church membership... The elders are signing their name on a dotted line and we're saying, we promise to do these things and you are signing your name on the bottom line. You say, we promise to respond in this way and be God's people. We're gonna take care of one another. We're gonna love one another. We're gonna provide meals for one another when we're sick. We're gonna help each other disciple one another. We're making a formal relationship with one another, a covenant to love one another and serve one another, right? That's what we do in church membership. We see them doing the same thing here today. So that's what happens in the first Verses, let's skip to verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants. And look at this. And all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Pause. What, what this is going on, this is what a church service is. We are separating ourselves from the people of the world. We're coming out from the world and be ye separate, saith the Lord. They're gathering together and they're saying this, though we're surrounded by pagans. And when I say pagans, guys, I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Pagan means just you worship a different God than the real God, all right? And whether it's you're worshiping an idol or you're worshiping Allah or you're worshiping Buddha or you're worshiping the universe or some God of your own making, by definition, that person is a pagan. Or you're just, you know, um, a materialist. You're, that person's still a pagan because they're not worshiping the one true God. So these people, they're separating themselves from the pagans. They're coming together to be formed by God, to be shaped by God. They want to be different from the world. So they separate themselves. They come together and they're reading up from the scriptures. And it wasn't, listen, this is the covenant community. And it wasn't just the adults. Okay? It was all of the people, including their children. listen, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. So what, this is right here. This is they're cutting a covenant. Why does they walk in a curse? That's just shorthand for a covenant. Because if you break the covenant, you receive a curse. If you obey the covenant and walk in the Lord's ways, you receive a blessing. Okay, so them and their family, they they come out from the world, come together, and they're saying, we're making a covenant with our God, us and all of our children. We're going to be different from the world. We're going to look different. We're going to act different. We're going to be different. We're going to be a part of God's story and not try to make our own story. All right, so that's, that's that's where we're at right now. So the people here are renewing their covenant with God. They've already confessed their sins in the previous chapter. They've already been forgiven. But now they need to recommit themselves to obeying the covenant. So they make, what they're going to do here is make four vows. They make four vows to keep the covenant. And in the remaining remaining of the chapter, the rest of the chapter, we're going to see those four vows. And there's still vows that we need to make today. All right. So let's take a look at those. Vow number one. And enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's way, or to walk in God's law, verse 29, that was given by Moses, the servant of God. Look, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Now, this is kind of a summary, and then they're going to break out into more specific vows later on. This is a very simple one. They're coming together. Step one, we promise to be people of the book. We promise to play our part in the story. We're going to know your word. We're going to observe your word. We're going to obey your word. We're going to do what the Bible tells us to do. Step one, that's the way a Christian responds as well. God forgives us of our sin. He forgives us of our covenant breaking. And then when we come together, we say, we're going to leave here today and we're going to, we're going to obey the Lord, right? We're going to read our Bibles. We're going to understand the the word of God. We're going to do our best in order to obey it. That's what they do. First thing they do, God Whatever you tell us to do in your word, that's what we're going to do. Now, this is interesting here. They're saying, we are characters in your story. You tell us who we are. You tell us what our identity is. You tell us how to live our life. We trust you. You tell us and we will obey. Then they get more specific. Look at verse 30. I better take a drink here. Sorry. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our son. Now, what they're saying here is we we, we will not marry outside of this community. We will not marry pagans or allow our children to marry pagans. Now, if you know the story, this was always a temptation and a problem for God's people. See, a marriage is also a covenant. It's, again, it's not a contract between two people. It's a bond in blood, a lifelong monogamous commitment between a man and a woman, and God actually joins them together. We learn that in Genesis chapter 2, but then Jesus, the Son of God, when he's speaking on marriage, he says that a marriage is between a, a man and a woman, and God joins them together. He says what God joins together, let not man separate, right? So Jesus affirmed the reality that marriage is actually a covenant. So God is meant to be at the center of a marriage. And obviously, if you worship different gods, you will have a deep-seated brokenness and chaos embedded In the marriage. So a believer and an unbeliever are not to be married. These people here recognize that one of the reasons they had been cursed and ended up in Babylon because they had intermarried with pagans who led their hearts away from the true God to worship demons and idols. This is one of the things, if you read the Old Testament, you see a lot of the kings made these horrible mistakes, Solomon being the worst, Right? He had hundreds of wives and he brought in um, pagan wives and they they drew his heart away after other gods and it always brought difficulty and destruction. Now this is explicitly taught in the New Testament as well. Christians are not to be quote, unequally yoked with unbelievers and yoke there has nothing to do with eggs, okay? A yoke is like a harness that you put between two animals. And here's the idea. You would yoked together two animals and they needed to be of equal size. If you put the yoke on a big old bull and a small little bull, that big bull would drag the little bull to its death, right? It would not stop and just drag it to death. So when Paul's talking about talking to Christians, he's saying a Christian and a non-Christian should not be yoked together, should not be in an intimate relationship together. That means they shouldn't click on that dating profile. They shouldn't slide into the DMs, all right? They shouldn't date a non-Christian, all right? A Christian should not date a non-Christian. What does light have to do with darkness? Paul says nothing. So young, young people, singles in this room, I know the temptation is real and I know it's slim pickings out there, right? It's hard to find a Christian man or a Christian woman. But one of the realities that we are called to do as God's covenant people is only date and marry other Christians, right? And parents, yes, you can be explicit about that with your children. And yes, you should be concerned if your children are having too intimate or too close of a relationship with people who are not Christians, because it's all through the scripture, right? Bad company corrupts good morals, Proverbs tells us. So you should be very aware of who all your kids' friends are and how close they are getting with them because they, their friends can lead them away from, from the worship of the true God, right? It happens all the time. All right, so that's the first thing they say. Hey, guys, we've seen what happened in the past. We don't want to be those guys right? We don't want God's curse on us. We don't want our, we want all this destruction. We don't want our family broken apart. So we commit to following God's ways. One of the ways that we commit to do that is we're not going to marry outside of our religion, right? That's what they do. Now, second thing, verse uh, 31. Second one is verse 31. And if the peoples of the land, so the outsiders there surrounding them, bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every day. Okay, here's what's going on. They're remembering the story. God created the world and everything in it in six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested right? This gave us a pattern for the way that we were to live. We were meant to live. We were meant to work six days and do all of our normal things for six days. And then on the seventh day, we were meant to worship God and rest. And that seventh day was meant to be different for us. All right. Now, this is explicitly laid out in the covenant God makes with Moses and God's people, and he tells he makes it one of the Ten Commandments. He calls this the Sabbath, and you're to keep the Sabbath day holy. You're not meant to do all your normal duties on the Sabbath. It's meant to be a day set apart, to go to church, to worship God, to go to the temple, and it, it's meant to be different, okay? It, that's, that's what the Sabbath is, is meant to do. Now, here's what happens. For centuries, the Sabbath was on Saturday, Right? Six days of creation, last day of the week, Sabbath is on Saturday. But then when Jesus Christ comes, Jesus Christ is resurrected on the seventh day. And what the disciples do is they say, since Jesus Christ is resurrected on the first day of the week, right, Sunday... We're now going to celebrate the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, on the first day of week. So now Sunday becomes our Sabbath, Sunday becomes our holy day, where we don't do our normal duties and we worship God, right? That's this is what happens in the New Testament. Now this is interesting because all the way up from, from the I'll just let's just jump here. From the founding of our country until about 50 years ago, nothing was opened on the Sabbath. Right? Nothing was open. You couldn't go get groceries on the Sabbath. You couldn't get gas on the Sabbath. Why? Because we were. This was a Christian. This was a Christian country. We had Christian morals. We had Christian values, and we say God's blessed us. We're going to work six days. and We're going to rest on one. And so, you you couldn't do do anything on 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 the Sabbath, right? These people are making a very similar commitment. But this is interesting. They know, the pagans don't care. Every day is the same to a pagan. It's just another day to make money. It's another day to work. It's another day for kids sports. But God's people are meant to be set apart. We're coming out from the world and we do things differently here. We put God at the center of everything here. And so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to keep the Sabbath holy to the Lord. And when they come and want to buy grain from us, we're going to say, sorry, closed on Sunday. More than just Chick-fil-A, right? Closed on Sunday. We're not doing this thing. We're not going to do it. Now, what would that do? One, it would form them differently. Their children would grow up knowing Sunday is the Lord's day. We're Christians. We do things different. We don't play sports on Sunday. We don't miss church for random different things. We don't work if we can help it. Like, we set that part away. We set that day away wholly unto the Lord. And what else would it do? It would be a missional invitation for the world the world would go, Oh, this God's different. Do you realize that Christianity is the only religion that the God says, take a break one day a week. Buddha's last words upon dying were strive without ceasing. Jesus Christ's last words, it is finished. Do you see the difference between those religions? God from the beginning says, work six days rest on one day. And so the world is meant to look in and go, oh, these people are different. They don't do that. They don't treat every day the same. One day a week, they say, no, no, we're setting apart this day, holy unto the Lord. And we're doing things differently. <clears throat> so second thing they do is they vow to keep the Sabbath. And here's the, here's the reality. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you're more likely to start breaking all the other commandments too because it's, it's in the Sabbath that you're reminded of the story. You're reminded of who God is. You're reminded of what he's required of you. You're reminded that he's already forgiven your sins in Christ, that you're coming together and you're worshiping God. And so the Sabbath is meant to orient you towards God to send you back out into the world a little bit different than than the way you came in. Right? And so the more you miss the Sabbath, I'll tell you, the more easy it becomes to start breaking more commandments. And this is one of the reasons if somebody's in an inappropriate relationship. They're dating somebody they shouldn't date. One of the first things they do is what? Stop going to church, right? It just naturally, naturally happens. They're all, it's all connected. Okay. Lastly, verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation. Hold on. How many like that word? How many like that word? If you're a millennial, I know you hate that word. A obligation. I like to just keep my options open. This is why Facebook invented the maybe. They, I get invited to something, maybe. What do I mean by that? If nothing else is going on and there's nothing else better, I'll come to that thing. But I'm gonna decide at the last moment, right? Most of us don't like obligation, we don't like duty. These people here are saying, we recognize we are actors in God's story and because of all the work that God has done already on our behalf, we have an obligation to him and to our brothers and sisters. Amen. We have a duty that doesn't matter how we feel. So we're committing ourselves to doing something no matter how we feel. And listen, people, because I always talk about like, it doesn't matter what you feel. I, I'm, I, when, I, when I'm saying that, I'm not trying to say feelings don't matter. What I'm trying to say Our feelings are subjective and what God has done for us is objective and we have to lean into what is objectively true, good, and beautiful no matter how we feel. So it doesn't matter if I feel like worshiping God, I'm going to worship God because he deserves it. He's already sent his son to die on the cross for my sins, right? I'm going to love my wife no matter how I feel. That's how you build a good marriage. If you only act loving towards your spouse when you feel like it, your marriage is awful. Right? I'm just going to tell you. It's, it's going to be awful. Right? No, we act loving even when we don't feel like it. We, and, and here we see these people obligating. Now, what are they going to obligate themselves to do? To give yearly. Basically, I'm going to go through this all really fast. But you see them here saying this. We're going to take care of one another. We're going to take care of the church and we're going to provide for the ministry. So so, so we're going to put God's house first. That's what they're doing. Let's keep going. To give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering. So this is all the ministry that's happening in the temple, the regular burn offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. Here it is again. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, that's the plants, The first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons. So they dedicate them to the Lord and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, all their livestock to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God and to bring to the Levites that's the priest's helpers, the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithe to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. And here's the point. We will not neglect the house of our God. See, last thing they commit themselves to do is to give consistently and sacrificially of their finances to fund God's church and mission in the world. That God's church and mission, God's church was an institution that was meant to be at the center of their life, right? It was meant, they were meant to start their, we are, end their week there for them, we're meant to start our week here, and it's meant to be the center of their worship, the center of their life. They were to set aside a day every week to purposefully go to the temple. They were to set aside finances to keep it up and running. All of that was for one purpose, to keep God at the center of their life, right? That's why they were doing it. These Old Testament believers are saying with their words, they're literally signing their name on the dotted line here, and with their walk of life, God, you are our God, and we want to be characters in your story. You are the author, and we're going to build our life around you, around your word and around your church. Forgiveness for our covenant breaking is found nowhere else. So why? We've got to go back to our God. Security for the future and blessings for the future is found nowhere else. So we've got to go back to our God. Now, <clears throat> as you start studying covenants, one of the things you're going to quickly realize in the Old Testament spe- specifically is that the greatest problem with the covenants were the men that God made them with, okay? So here's what, uh, the covenants, people talk about, oh, that's under the, that's the old covenant, that's the old covenant. The problem is not the covenants, The problems were the men who made the covenants, okay? All the men were sinners. All the men broke the covenants and then brought curses down upon themselves and the people. So the covenant wasn't the problem. The problem was the men. They didn't keep the covenant. Now, why do I bring that up? Because it's tempting for us. There's a certain type of preacher out there that's more like inspirational. He's more of a, you know, gives a little pep talk. And what he often does is he rallies people to recommit the covenant and like step up. All right, guys, Everybody else failed, but we're going to be the ones that keep the covenant. So let's all stand up here and recommit ourselves to, we're going to be the ones. No, 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 no. That's not the purpose of this. Okay. No, no, no. What we need to see is that every man who made the covenant with God in the past failed and broke it. Right? Now, why do we need to know that? Because it's only when you understand that, will you actually understand who Jesus was and why he came to this earth. See, God made covenants with men, but men always broke them. So what does God do? God refuses to break his own covenant with us. So what he chooses to do is God becomes man to fulfill our side of the covenant in our place. Jesus comes as our new covenant representative, our new covenant head. Jesus lives a perfect life. He obeys all the covenant rules for us, right? So Jesus earns all the blessings for us by being perfect, right, for us. But what Jesus does then is on the cross, he does the unthinkable. He takes on all of the covenant curses that we had earned for our covenant breaking, so Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve for breaking God's covenant. And what does Jesus do? Remember those, that animal that was torn asunder. And if you walk through the covenant, you would say, if I break the covenant, I'll be torn asunder. Well, God makes the covenant with us. Jesus comes down as our covenant head. Jesus walks through the pieces. And what happens? Jesus is torn asunder for us on the cross. He's beaten. He's tortured. He's crucified on the cross becoming a curse for us. This is interesting. But because Jesus was God, I keep saying that over and over because there's a lot of interesting stuff here for me. Because Jesus was God and he never sinned as a man... Death did not have any power over him. He could lay down his life and then he could pick it back up again. So what did Jesus do? He goes to the cross, dies our death, dies the death that we deserve. And then three days later, he rose from the grave, right? By this resurrection, he proved that God had accepted this divine exchange, That Jesus took on our sin and he took on our punishment so that he could give us a righteousness that comes by faith in him and not by our obedience to the covenant. That's what happens on the cross. Jesus gives us the blessings of the covenant and takes the curses of the covenant in himself. So when we now put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, now there is no longer a dark cloud hanging over us for all of our covenant breaking. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus, our covenant head, our representative and God is eternally pleased with us. Why is he eternally pleased with us? Because he's eternally pleased with Jesus, our covenant head. Now, why, why is that a big deal, Justin? Because this understanding fuels all my current and future obedience. See, if I come to God and I'm like, what do you want for my life? You want me to do that? And I can't date this person. I have to date that person. And I, I, I can't work on Sundays and I got to take... Whoa, 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 what? Like you're misunderstanding what's going on in the world. A Christian sees things totally different. God has taken away all of my sin god has filled me with his own righteousness so now he looks through jesus and sees me and god smiles at me all the time because god smiles at jesus and i'm in christ right god's taken all my past my present my future sin he's going to be give me a new body he's going to bring me to heaven he's going to bring heaven to earth god's given everything to me because of jesus of course i want to start my week by worshiping him on sunday what else would I want to do? Of course, I won't marry an unbeliever. Of course, I won't let my children date un- unbelievers. Of course, I want to give a portion of my money back to God. God has given me all things. I'm a, I am one character in his story, right? He owns, a thousand, uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What that means is he owns it all. He put the gold in the earth, right? He put all the minerals that we go and make little cool cell phones and stuff out of them. God put them there. They were his, Right? And he gives us everything we have to enjoy and to give a portion of it back to him. That's what motivates a Christian. God's past goodness, God's past grace motivates me. Not like this white knuckled, oh, I guess I got to go to church. Please don't if that's you, right? No, like it's a gift that we get to come and worship our great God. so when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ there is now no longer any condemnation over us God is the author and look at the story he's already written see listen we're not done right we're in the middle of our our story and still the story of God but look back look at at history Look look at all God's faithfulness all God's goodness in the past There is no other religion in the world with this kind of self-giving, gracious God at the center of it. A God who would look down at covenant breakers and go, I know what I can do. I'll come down there and meet the needs for them. I'll become a man to obey the law myself. I'll become a man to keep their side of the covenant. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, if God has already done all this to save us from our sins, can we trust him with the rest of our life? Can we trust that when we come to something in the Bible that's difficult for us to understand or difficult for us to obey, or we go, I don't think that's good. Can we trust that his ways are always better than our ways? Can we say to him, I trust you. You tell me who I am. You tell me what I'm for. You tell me the purpose of my life. You tell me which way I should walk. You tell me what to do with my money. You tell me how to raise my family. You, you are the author. You write my story. Listen. It's one of the great problems in our society today is the, our society, our educational system are all telling young people Nobody can tell you who you are. Your mom can't. This is one of the reasons they're trying to separate students and they want students to be separated from their their parents and they want students to go inside somehow and discover who they are and discover what gender they are of the many hundreds of thousands of genders that could potentially be. And they don't want the parents to know about it. And they can confess this to the teacher and the teacher can reaffirm this identity that they say they have without telling the the parents. They want to separate the parents from the, the, the child, right? In order to indoctrinate them with a different story that you need to go in your own heart and find who you are. And then whatever you find there, if you want to be true to yourself, you got to live out that story. When you allow a child to do that, they'll come out saying crazy things, right? It's a child. Like if you would have done that when I was a little kid, I would have came out and said, I'm the Incredible hawk. That's who I am. I would have loved my teachers to call me Hulk every day, right? Right? You go in there and you find crazy stuff. But listen, here's what, why I bring it up. I don't just want to make, make fun of it. It's destroying the souls of children. You don't go inside the cesspool of our heart and find something good down there and then live in line with it. You go and find the story of God and you had, God, who, who, who am I? God made them male and female. I'm one of those. Okay, which one, right? And I live out that story. I live out that narrative, right? I'm created in the image of God. God says I can be a child of God. How do I do that? I live into his story. That's how you find meaning. That's how you found value. That's how you know God. That's how you get to heaven. That's how you build a, a family. That's how you live out a meaningful and purposeful life. Don't go in and try to create your own story. No, 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 no. Conform to the story of God. God, Paul says it like this. Last thing I say, Paul says it like this. 2 Corinthians five nineteen. quote in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. See, why are we set apart? Why do we come together every Sunday? Why are there certain things that we don't do? Because our lives are, point back to our God. We are ambassadors for Christ. If we send ambassadors over to a different country and they act the fool and do crazy things, that looks bad on our whole country, right? Christians are meant to live a certain way and operate a certain way in the covenant so that people can look in and go, oh, that God is gracious. Oh, that God is kind. Oh, that God is merciful. Oh, that God is truthful. We are ambassadors for Christ. So if you're here this morning, And you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. I offer it to you. All of the blessings of the covenant, forgiveness of your sins, a new family, new brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit coming inside of you, direction, meaning, purpose, all of that is offered to you freely by grace this morning. All you have to do is take it by faith. And then if you've already taken that by faith, we get to celebrate a meal, a covenant meal. And remember, on the night Jesus was betrayed, before he was beaten, before he was crucified, he took the the Passover meal and he changed the Passover meal. And he changed it into a new covenant meal. And he said, this bread represents my body and this cup represents my new covenant, a covenant in my blood. And I want you to eat it as often as you gather together. I want you to eat it anytime you come together to celebrate my death, to remember my death. And scripture tells us that when we eat it and we drink it, we're participating In Christ, we're participating in the body. We're participating in the blood. We're coming together. This is what covenant keeping looks like. This is what covenant renewal looks like. Jesus, once again, gives us his body. He gives us his blood. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for just the miraculous story that you've told. We thank you that we can be a part of it. You are a covenant keeping God, even when we consistently break covenant. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for giving us grace. Thank you for giving us this meal. I pray that the Christians would come this morning and eat it in celebration in thankfulness and in worship to you. And you would be spiritually present here with us and give us what our souls need in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.